1599 by H.B. Fife, Chapter 7. This LibriVox recording is in public domain. Westervelt was still sitting with Joe Rosencrantz in the communications room when Colburn's call came through. He looked over Joe's shoulder as the operator swiveled to face his telephone viewer. How come you remember the number, he greeted Colburn. Did the elevator doors close on you? Very funny, ha-ha, retorted Colburn. Look, Joe, have you got power? Westervelt peered closer, thinking that the redhead looked unusually concerned. Rosencrantz seemed not to have noticed. Power, he said. Have I got power? I can pull in stations you never heard of. Just on willpower. You, you poor slob. You don't even remember if you're on your way home or coming to work. What is it now? I'll tell you what it is, shouted Colburn. It's a power failure. They don't even have any lights out on the street. I nearly got trampled to death getting back in the lobby to phone you. Westervelt and Rosencrantz looked at each other. Come to think of it, Charlie, said the operator. The lights did blink a minute ago. I wonder if that was our own power taking over for the whole floor. They saw Colburn turn his head and heard him expostulating with someone who plainly was impatient to get into the phone cubicle. I'll go check the meters, said Rosencrantz. Watch the space set for me, Willie. What, what, what? Stuttered Westervelt, groping after him. Charlie, he went away. What do I do if a call comes in? Colburn finished dealing with his own problem downstairs and returned his attention to Westervelt. He requested a repeat. I said that Joe went around the corner to check the power, babbled the youth. What do I do if a space call comes in? He said to watch the set. Oh, said Colburn. You see the little red star-shaped light at the left of the board under the screen? Yeah, yeah. It's out, Charlie. Well, it should be. It's an automatic call indicator set for our code. If it goes on, it shows you're getting a call even if you have the screen too dark or the audio too low to notice. So you look for a green one like it on the other side. Yeah, I see it. You push the button beside it, and our code goes out automatically to acknowledge. Then you push the next button underneath, which puts out a repeating signal to stand by. Got that so far? I got it, said Westervelt. Then what? Then you go scream for Joe at the top of your lungs. That covers everything. You are now a deep space operator. Just don't touch any of those buttons until you get a license. But Charlie... He was saved by the return of Rosencrantz, for whom he thankfully vacated space before the phone. Colburn was again engaged in making faces at some other desperate commuter. You were right, Charlie, said Rosencrantz. We're strictly on our own private power. The whole floor, as near as I can tell. I thought they were being fussy when they put it in, but maybe it will pay off at that. How does it look down there? It's a mess, said Colburn. You wouldn't believe there were so many people working in our building. No, no, said Rosencrantz. I mean, what's the situation? Is it just this building that's cut off, or the whole city, or what? You can't believe anything they're saying, Colburn told them, but they had somebody yapping on the public address system. It seems as the whole section of the city, about 50 blocks square, cut off. They're talking about a main cable overloading. I can imagine what they're saying, said Rosencrantz. The poor guy's stuck with finding and replacing it, I mean. Colburn gave a hollow laugh. You think they're the only ones stuck? There ain't a single subway belt moving to the suburban heliports. All the local surface monorails are stopped. You should see the way they're packing the ground taxis, and the cops won't let any more helicabs come down. They're supposed only to pick up from the roof, said Rosencrantz. That isn't where the people are. The people are all down here with me, and half of them are trying to get in the booth to tell their wives they won't be home. Well, there's a lot of us won't get home tonight, if the boys don't find that break pretty soon. Westervelt and Rosencrantz exchanged glances. The youth shrugged. He'd been planning on staying late anyhow. Tell him to come back up, Joe, he suggested. We have food in the locker for visitors and he can clear a table in here to snooze on. Colburn had heard him, and was shaking his head. I'd like nothing better, Willie, he said, but I might as well start walking. It's better on the level than on the stairs. What do you mean, stairs? I don't know about the other buildings around here, but they regretfully announced that there will be no elevators running above the 70-50 floor in this one. In fact, they only have partial service that high, on the building's emergency power generator. Rosencrantz looked worried. 
Broodingly, he fumbled out a box of cigarettes. What do you think, Charlie? he asked. I mean, Leidman? That's why I called, said Colburn. I think you better check the stairs and tell Smith. If he starts our boy down them, the 99 floors will give him something to keep his mind busy. The pressure from outside finally intimidated him into switching off. The last I saw of him on the fading phone screen, he was striving desperately to ease himself out of the booth in the face of a bellowing rush of harried commuters for the phone. Joe sighed, trying to light his smoke from the wrong end of the box. I'm going to check our elevator, Joe, Westervelt said. He left the communications room and trotted up the corridor and around the corner. Through the main doors, he caught sight of Pauline peering out her compartment. A thought struck him. He hurried over to her and thrust his head to the opening in her glass partition. Were you still on that line, cutie, he demanded. What line, demanded Pauline indignantly. Oh, Willie, does this mean we have to walk down 25 floors tonight? You little. Listen, don't let out a peep about this until we know more. Why not, Willie? Do you want to get everybody upset? How can they dream up brilliant ideas while they're worrying about ordering sandwiches sent up? Promise. Pauline reluctantly gave her word not to say anything without consulting him. Westervelt returned to the hall where he pressed the button for the elevator. He waited about three times as long as it usually took to get a car, then tried again with the same lack of results. Looking up, he discovered that even the red light over the entrance to the stairs was out. That, apparently, had not been part of the 99th floor system now powered by their own generator. Westervelt took the few steps to the doorway concealing the stairs. There was beautifully reproduced notice on the door, informing all persons that this was an emergency exit and that the door would open automatically in case of fire or other emergency. It further offered detailed directions on how to leave, which in simple language meant, go downstairs. The door is shut, muttered Westervelt, so that proves there isn't any emergency. He tried the handle. It did not budge, except for a slight clicking. Feeling slightly uneasy, he leaned over to squint at the crack of the door. He spotted the latch, a sturdy bar, and saw that he was moving it. There was, however, another bar which did not move, and the door refused to slide open. Of course, he breathed. It's made to open automatically. How would they do that? By electricity? What haven't we got plenty of? The damn thing's locked. Somebody designed a beautiful setup. He looked about the empty corridor, jittering indecisively. I could call downstairs before I tell Smitty, he reminded himself. For the sake of having a handy shoulder to cry on, he went all the way back to the communications room to use a phone. He made a gesture of throwing up his hands as Job looked around, then got Pauline on the phone. See if you can get me the building manager's office, he requested. Don't be surprised if it's busy for a couple of minutes. It was nearer 15 minutes before his call went through. During that time, he learned that Rosencrantz took a serious view of the inconvenience. I guess you heard some of the talk about Bob Leidman, said the operator. Well, some is imagination, but a lot of it's true. He spent a long time in a hellhole out among the stars. And if there's anything that might shove him off course, it's the idea that he can't get out. No matter where he is, he has to know he can leave when he feels like it. But if he doesn't know about it, asked Westervelt, how long can you keep it quiet? I bet you can see a blackout from the window. Watch the set. I'll take a look. Oh, now wait a minute, Joe. Westervelt's consternation was diverted by the call that came through at that moment. A perspiring face with ruffled gray hair, which Westervelt could remember having seen occasionally about the lobby downstairs, looking extremely sleek and well-groomed, appeared on the phone screen. If you're above the 75th, walk down that far. If you're lower... Walk down as far as you can, said the man hoarsely. If you can stay put, that's the best thing. Tell me what power failure, not responsibility of the building management, said the sweating gentleman. Please cooperate. 
But what? We're doing all we can, and this phone is busy, young man. Will you please? The stairs are locked, shouted Westervelt. For a moment, he doubted that he had penetrated the official's panic. Then he saw a new outrage in the man's eyes. What did you say? Westervelt explained about the door to the stairs. The gentleman downstairs clapped both hands to his moist cheeks. He had begun to look numb. After a long pause, he pulled himself together enough to promise that he would look into the matter. As he switched off, Westervelt heard him muttering that it was just too much. You hear that, Joe? He asked. Yeah, and I didn't like it, replied the operator. What does that leave us? No elevators, no stairs. How about the helicopter roof? You have to walk up a flight of stairs to get there, said Westervelt, thinking of the department's three helicopters garage in their private tower roof. It's the same door. I suppose the door to the top is frozen, too. Well, anyway, that could be worse, said Joe. That makes two doors to knock open, and I bet your boys have some little gadget around that will do that. Westervelt felt better. There was always a way out, he told himself. Just the same, he thought he had better let Smith know about the situation. He told Joe where he was going and headed back up the hall. When he reached the corner, he tried the door again for luck. The luck was the same. He wondered whether to go look in the lab for some burning tool. On second thought, he decided that if any damage had to be done to the building, it was not his responsibility. He turned to enter the main office, flashing Polly a wink that he hoped would look reassuring. Simonetta was busy with a case folder, but Beryl was seizing an opportunity to repair her nail polish of iridescent gold. She eyed him curiously as he bent over to whisper into the brunette's ear. Are they still working in there, Cy? He asked. She drew away with a mock frown, demanding, What's so confidential? Are you spying for Yolene? Westervelt scowled over her head out the window. It was twilight outside, and he noted that there were only a few dim lights in nearby tall buildings. I just wanted to see Mr. Smith, he forced himself to say. Don't tell me you want to go home now that you've got all the rest of us to say we'd stay. She softened when she saw that he had no wisecrack and readiness. You know I didn't mean that, Willie, she said. Is something the matter? Of all the people in the department, Simonetta was the one he found it easiest to confide in. He had to struggle with himself, especially since he saw no reason why she should not know. I, uh, just wanted to see him a minute, he said lamely. I'll come back later. He got out of the office, feeling his neck burn under the combined stares of the two girls. In the corridor, he halted to survey the sealed-off means of egress. Both the elevator and the stairway door looked normal enough except for the red exit light being dark. Westervelt wondered if it would be smart to go around and adjust all the window filters so that no one would expect to see many city lights should they happen to glance outside. He went over to the door for one last examination, wishing that it were a hinge type instead of a sliding. While he was bending to peep at the lock, he heard a sound behind him and leaped up guiltily. Smith stood six feet away, outside the hall door of his office. He had planted one fist on his hip and was running the other hand through his rumpled hair as he gaped at Westervelt. There's no keyhole there, Willie, he said at last. Westervelt had the feeling that he ought to offer the perfectly simple explanation with which he had been living for what seemed like hours. The words refused to come. Does this have anything to do with the message Cy just brought me? demanded Smith. What message? asked Westervelt, clearing his throat. The police called and claimed someone reported seeing, from the air, three helicopters being stolen from our roof. Did she say that? asked Westervelt. She had the sense to write it down and show me while they were talking about submarines. Something about the way she winked made me think I'd better come out, so I told the boys I was going down the hall a minute. Westervelt heaved a sigh. He would not have to be alert to duck an aroused lightman charging down the corridor. Then, Mr. Smith, he suggested, let's walk down that way in case someone comes out and sees us, and I'll tell you all about it. They shouldn't be out for a while, Smith commented, examining the youth doubtfully. I started a little argument before I came out. 
Nevertheless, he followed Westervelt around the far corner, to the wing leading to the laboratory and restrooms. They had gone perhaps ten feet past the corner when Westervelt finished the report on the elevators and came to the frozen locks on the stairway door. Smith stopped in his tracks, as if to run back and check for himself, but restrained himself. "'You're absolutely sure, Willie?' he asked. "'You can check with Joe Rosencrantz, Mr. Smith, or you can call the office of the building manager downstairs.' Smith rubbed his high-bridged nose as he pondered. His lips moved, and Westervelt thought he read the name, Lydman. Then Smith checked off on his fingers, muttering, The stairs, elevators, and helicopters. No wonder they were stolen, he said. Someone saw a chance to make some easy money with all the helitaxis taken. The police will find them tomorrow. Meanwhile, I guess it's some trouble to us, said Westervelt. Yes, it might be some trouble, admitted Smith. And this time said it aloud. Lydman. We won't mention it to him yet, right, Willie? End of chapter 7